Hello and welcome to Four for State, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Not many weeks go by where Elon Musk isn't in the news, especially since he became the owner of Twitter. Or perhaps I should say X. On Saturday, Musk tweeted that the block function was going to be removed. The block function is a way many people on the platform protect themselves from abuse. The news that people could soon be losing their ability to block had many people up in arms and threatening to leave. To discuss this and more, we're lucky to have with us Dr. J. Daniel Thompson. He's a lecturer and program manager in the School of Media and Communications at RMIT. Now, before we get started, I should declare two things. I used to be a heavy user of Twitter, but I closed my account in 2020, and I haven't looked back. And we're both going to use the name Twitter, and not X. Sorry, Elon. Dr. J. Daniel Thompson, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. Dr. Thompson, let's start with Elon Musk's tweet on Saturday. The block function was going to be removed. Firstly, we should talk about what the block function does for people who aren't on the platform and why it has many people concerned. Absolutely. So the block function prevents one you prevents the blocked person from seeing what you are doing. Let's just say that I block you on Twitter. Now, if I was to block you, you would not be able to see my tweets or direct message me. Under Elon Musk's proposed plan, you will not, the block function will remain for direct messages or DMs, but it will not remain on the platform itself. You will not be able to, if he gets his way, you will not be able to block anybody for any reason. You will be able to mute somebody. Now, these terms are often used interchangeably. They mean subtly but importantly different things. If I was to mute somebody, I cannot see their tweets or what they're doing, but they can see mine. They can respond to my tweets. They can direct message me. Does that make sense? It does. And as a former Twitter user, the block function and the mute function have very different uses. You often mute somebody who maybe is just tweeting all the time (laughs) or or saying things that that maybe you're happy for them to follow you and you're happy to follow them, but maybe you don't really agree with a lot of the stuff they're saying. So you can just kind of cleanse your, your Twitter experience. But blocking has a very, very different function, doesn't it? That is absolutely correct. Blocking, as more than one commentator has said, is a form of user moderation. And it's as much there for your well-being as anything else. For example, you might block somebody who has been harassing you, sending abusive tweets or direct messages. You may block somebody out of fear for your personal safety, for example, whereas you would not do that with the mute function. I might mute someone who is tweeting something juvenile or annoying, but not necessarily harmful. That's where the distinction lies. Now, look, we're both men on that platform, and there's been a history of abuse that predates Elon. 
What are some of the ramifications of removing the block function and what are some of the kinds of abuse and targeted abuse that is taking place on, on Twitter? All right, we'll start with the ramifications of removing the block function. Where do we start? I, I think the first would be the greater likelihood that the kinds of communication we encounter on Twitter becomes ever more toxic. There's no other and abusive. Anything goes in this particular quote-unquote town square. And if you don't like it, if you don't wish to be abused or to be contacted by somebody you don't wish to be contacted by, then your only option as a user is to leave. And that's particularly difficult if, for example, you've got friends on Twitter and that's how you keep in contact. If, if you're a journalist and you need to keep up with the news, it, it has an absolutely devastating impact and it certainly threatens to lower the um, quality of communication on Twitter, uh, it can potentially endanger lives. For example, if I'm unable to block somebody who's been sending abusive messages and retweeting me in a derogatory fashion. So poses absolutely great threat to public, can pose a great threat to public health and safety. Elon Musk famously restored many cancelled accounts when he took over Twitter. Yes. How has the platform changed in tone since he took ownership? Well, the Centre for Countering Digital Hatred, which monitors this kind of abusive activity, has found that, in fact, the kind of toxic communication we've been talking about, the abuse, the hate speech, the vilification of minorities has only increased. Now, that's particularly saying something given that Twitter, as with all other platforms, has never been, has always had that element of abusiveness. There's always been, you know, it, it's never been egalitarian in any true sense. Hmm. I mean, so for instance, we've got accounts spreading misinformation, accounts posting derogatory, but not necessarily explicit comments about marginalised groups. It's becoming what a number of users have called a hell site. I predict that that will only increase should the block get blocked. But only time will tell. Now, in June, Elon Musk posted that blocking public posts makes no sense. Yes. Now, now, he's famously a believer in free speech. In fact, we should say he's a free speech absolutist. That's um, what he's called himself. Mm, and I'm, but I'm struggling to see why someone needs to be you know, abused racially or otherwise. Why is it good for them or society? Let's be fair to Elon. What does he actually think about free speech and how he views some of the issues we're just talking about right now? Well, obviously, I don't know what's going on in Elon Musk's mind. Certainly assessing his public comments, I would suggest that he's taking the concept of free speech to its logical conclusion, its logical conclusion being that anyone can and should say anything. And if you don't wish to engage, you don't have to. Of course, what the irony is there is that the kind of toxicity we encounter on platforms like Twitter, the racism, the misogyny, the transphobia, the ableism, et cetera, et cetera, has a chilling impact 
on its victims and those who witness it, it can actually drive those off the platform. I know members of those groups who've left because they don't feel it is a safe space for them to spend time. So it actually, has, ironically, has a silencing impact. It's censorious. Now, that free speech absolutist position is not something that Elon Musk came up with. It, it, in some respects, it's a very mainstream position in Silicon Valley. The one thing that categorizes all the people who believe in it, they, they all seem to be rich, white, and men. Do you see this lack of diversity within the within Silicon Valley as being one of the drivers and why something like this is happening? Absolutely, 100%. I should say, building on what you've just said there, that this notion of unfettered free speech has always underpinned social media platforms, not just Twitter. I do think it reflects the makeup of its board, of those who are controlling the platform. And I think it can have a deeply chilling impact on those who aren't, for example, white or cisgender or male or have money. Look, it's interesting for a free speech absolutist. Last year, Musk shut down a number of accounts linked to journalists who had been critical of him. Yes. Um, with Musk, it's always hard to decipher from his tweets and his actions what are his deeply held views, what are just yes. good old-fashioned grudges, and what is also self-promotion. Yes. What does your read on Musk and how seriously do you take his words on getting rid of the block function? He, he's, he has a history of saying all kinds of things that are not following yes. through. Do you, think, yes. do you think the block function is something that is going to go because it fits into these core values or do you have another take on it? That's a great question, Anthony, and it's really difficult for me to answer because I just simply don't know. Musk is a great deal like Donald Trump. He's a businessman. You know, it's, he's a showman as mm. well. It's all about the razzle-dazzle. It's all about the outrage. It's all about the distraction. Just as Mr. Trump implemented things such as the wall that many thought were improbable, so too, I believe, Elon Musk could behave very similarly. So it could go either way. We just don't know. Bear in mind that this is a private company. It was withdrawn from the stock market in October last year after Mr. Musk purchased Twitter. So he can he pretty much got free reign. That's the sense I'm getting. Look, it does feel from the outside that the platform is on a death spiral, but yeah. do, you, do you think it actually is? Rumours of Twitter's demise are greatly exaggerated. Twitter has been lying on its proverbial deathbed since at least, for at least the last 12 months, and yet it has not expired. So in the short term, no, I don't believe we're seeing an end to Twitter. A cynical take would suggest that this announcement about the block function may in fact draw attention and draw users to Twitter. I guess time will tell on that one. So it's going to attract a very particular kind of user. That's what I predict, absolutely. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. We certainly know that a lot of the accounts that were, and I'm not going to name them because I don't want to amplify them, but that were previously 
removed but have been restored or given amnesty under Elon Musk have been particularly active. They've gone back to their old ways. Even a quick search of Twitter reveals misinformation, reveals insults, reveals hate speech. Hmm. I, I do think it will appeal to a particular demographic. Look, when Threads was announced, there was, a, I think, a huge sigh of relief, and, and that sigh of relief resulted in something like 100 million registered users coming online very, very quickly. At the start of August, it, it was down to about 8 million daily users. It, it's a drop of about 82% from its peak. Yeah. Is it possible that Twitter wins by default, that even though we've been talking about uh, Twitter becoming increasingly toxic, increasingly uh, a difficult place to be, that Twitter is, will be the major pl- platform in this space in the future? It's difficult to predict. I, I can certainly say that Twitter is the better known of those brands. Look, we're talking about it here on mm. national radio. Yes. So, and another thing that has struck me is that even despite the toxicity, even despite the constant doom scrolling, that Twitter encourages many good folk stay on there because they might have communities on there or they want to stay up to date with what's going on or simply because they're used to it. Or if you're a journalist, you might be expected to have a profile and and be active on social media. Absolutely. That's a, a major source of journalistic content. Journalists get DM'd on Twitter. They keep up to date with current affairs on Twitter. They secure interviewees on Twitter. So I think as a journalistic tool, albeit an imperfect one, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Now, Elon Musk has referred to Twitter as the town square. If you're a person of colour, you're LGBTQI or even a woman, you probably don't feel safe in this town square. What is your view of, of the town square as far as Elon Musk talks about it? Well, it's not a town square that would appeal to everybody. I, I dare say there would be many who'd be putting their houses up for sale. <laughs> it's certainly a very exclusive town square. I, I think the, the other analogy that Musk made that as a, being a kind of PvP or player versus player is more apt. Of course, player versus player it re- relates to a kind of video game genre characterised by major conflict. I, I think that's perhaps more apt than the town square. Hmm. Now, look, yesterday the Sydney Morning Held in the Age posted a story about the level of abuse Aboriginal people are experiencing on Facebook. Abuse has been increasing due to the No campaign for The Voice, and according to the nine papers, Facebook is refusing to take down clearly racist comments because they don't break community standards. Are our community standards that low, or are these large platforms actually retreating from their basic duty to remove racist material, and are we seeing a retreat from content moderation across the board? This has long been an issue with social media platforms of what counts as hate speech, of what counts as acceptable and unacceptable. And far too often over the years, the bar has been said to be far too low. There's a lot of really great 
research from Australia and elsewhere on the kinds of working conditions the content moderators experience and the kinds of material they must encounter day in and day out. They have to look at everything so that everyone else doesn't. So it's a real challenge for users and it's a great challenge for moderators. We also know that in relation to Twitter, a lot of people, you know, large number of technical staff have lost their jobs since last October when Musk took over. So if you combine all of this, if you combine low levels of moderation, if you com- if you combine amb- often ambiguous community standards, if you combine a desire to keep users on the platform, which you're not going to do if they get banned, then to my way of thinking, that's a recipe for disaster. It does seem like we have a perfect storm about to happen. We do, and we've had it for quite a while, and the storm's only increasing. Well, the storm I'm thinking about is one which we're all going to be in very soon because next week Anthony Albanese will be announcing the date for the voice referendum. Yes. How worried are you of the kind of debate we're about to have as a nation? I'm petrified. I've been, as a white male, I've been horrified at the kinds of racist abuse that's increasingly been mainstreamed and seen as acceptable. My sad prediction is that that will only amplify across the internet, including on platforms like Twitter and Facebook, as the Yes campaign moves on. I don't think it's helped. Having said that, though, I don't think we can entirely blame social media platforms and their management. I think blame has to also come from the mainstreaming of abusive, snide and prejudiced rhetoric, e.g. by the likes of Pauline Hanson Hmm. and other no campaigners. It's, like you said, it's an absolute perfect storm. Yes, and look, it is very easy to blame these platforms when in some respects they're just reflecting back what's happening in our society. But they can also, I suppose the argument goes, that they can also more strongly enforce community standards. Yeah. Just because certain people feel that way doesn't mean that they need a platform or that their toxicity should remain on a platform. And that's why I come back to this whole idea of freedom of speech. It's often spoken about as one of the probably the biggest tenet of a healthy democracy. But what if we take it to its logical conclusion that anyone can say anything at any time and if you don't like it, too bad, so sad? I think ethical online communication might be a better approach than free speech, and that's something I'm working on in my research. And look, from the many discussions we have here on Fourth Estate, you know, obviously journalists have a, a very much a vested interest in freedom of speech. But I think if you got a, a room full of journalists in a room together, they would tell you freedom of speech is about holding the powerful to account. Being racially abusing somebody on Twitter isn't doing that at all. And no, I think this absolutely. is it's enforcing yes, dominance. It's a complete opposite reflection of freedom of speech. But I think we should also go back to discussing this idea of community standard because it's very clear, yeah. reading those messages that are being posted on Facebook, that is not a community standard. 
the fact that it's happening in oh. our community does not mean that it's actually a community standard. So I think we also need to make that di- that distinction between yes. the fact that it happens doesn't actually set a standard. No, no. In fact, it encourages the fact that these comments are going unmoderated, that they are remaining on the platform, gives a kind of license to the racists and the bigots. It says implicitly what you're doing is fine. It's freedom of speech, so carry on. And I I think that suggests something really quite terrifying about what's regarded as acceptable and not acceptable in the so-called town square. Let's return to Twitter and its central role for most of most of its life. Twitter was and is for many people a place where they get their news, especially breaking news. If content moderation is non-existent, if closed accounts from bad actors are back, and one can't yes. even block, you know where where one's getting their information from. Yes, this is also a perfect storm for disinformation, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, and there has been for a while. I'd want to talk about, when we're talking about misinformation, we want, might also want to talk about the immediacy of Twitter. Hmm. We're living, we really are living in a 24-7 media cycle. There is just so much information. It's really difficult to keep up. And so when you see the latest sensationalistic headline about Daniel Andrews or The Voice or whatever, the, or Yumi Steins' book or whatever their target is today, if it makes you feel something, if it outrages you, if it excites you, if it validates your worldview, you are likely, you are more likely to share this regardless of the accuracy of that post. And look, disinformation has been a problem for a long time and, and it definitely yes. predates Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Absolutely. You've mentioned a few aspects there. Is disinformation evolving? Are we seeing a change in how it rolls out across social media and I guess the tactics that people are using? When I say disinformation to a lot of people, mm-hmm. they'll probably think of Russians and bots and things like that. Yes. Is that yes. still the case? I think the rise and rise of bot software, as we can see in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, is absolutely an example of how disinformation, toxic disinformation, is being disseminated at a rate never before seen. In fact, I have an article in the conversation with my colleague Tim Graham from QUT in which we look at precisely that issue. Another form disinformation can take is the form of opinions. By posting something as my opinion, I'm not stating it's a fact, but what I am doing is putting it out there in the public sphere where it will get attention and possibly get shared and reshared by like-minded folk. Do you see how this works? I do. Yeah. So, look, for, for people who are listening, what, what are yeah. some of the ways that they can at least minimise the amount of disinformation that they are seeing, reading and even sharing? That's an excellent question. There are a number of techniques. The first and and strategies that everyday internet users can deploy to avoid being taken in by disinformation, the first of which is accept nothing at face value, nothing. Verify it. Who is saying this? 
who is posting this particular content and why. Check the, yeah, fact-checking organisations, I think, play a really major role in exposing factually dubious and entirely misleading content. If in doubt, don't share. Don't share. Sharing, reposting, retweeting is driven by emotion. It's driven by partisanship. It's not often driven by a desire for accuracy. So, yeah, hold off on resharing. And read widely. Read widely. Don't just obtain your news from social media or from a particular media outlet. There's a wide range of sources available to get our news, so take advantage of those where you can, bear in mind, we all live incredibly busy lives. Well, look, finally, you know, Twitter has been a place for journalists to gravitate to. You yes. know, it's been a social space. It's been a professional space. Yes. It helps them do their jobs. Yes. Do you do you actually see a future for journalists being on a platform like Twitter, especially seeing some of the aspects we've just been talking about? We are literally talking about it becoming increasingly toxic, increasingly yes. full of disinformation, increasingly full of abuse. Is it that we're mo- reaching a stage where Twitter is actually a place for journalists not to be? That's a great question. I'd say in the short term, journalists, many, not all, many journalists will remain on Twitter. It is still a place where news gets made. And I dare say that the onslaught of toxicity that I've pre- rightly or wrongly predicted will become a source of that news, if you see what I'm talking about. It's mm. still a place where major announcements are made, e.g. by politicians, film stars and the like. It's still a place where you can locate interviewees from the reliable to the not-so-reliable. My great concern when it comes to media professionals using Twitter on a regular basis is that it can threaten to become a, make their working lives hostile. There's been a great deal of attention given in recent decades to workplace bullying, sexual harassment and the like. How, if we consider that journalists are using Twitter as a professional space, then what does it say about that professional space if they're being abused, if they're being the subject of what my colleague Rob Cover and I have called digital pylons? where multiple users mock, degrade and vilify them, if their words are taken out of context, if they're receiving abusive DMs and they're unable to block the person who's abusing them. I'd say that sounds like the makings of a thoroughly hostile work environment. Dr J. Daniel Thompson, thank you for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me, Anthony. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist Yard and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. For the status produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fort State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. And we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is ForfaStateAU. And we are on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.